Please go to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. It's a joy and honor to be back here again. I was here a few months ago with my family. I did two messages in 2 Peter chapter 1, if you remember. I don't fault you if you don't. <laughs> but I thought it would be helpful if I continued in 2 Peter. So we're going to do all of 2 Peter chapter 2 today. So it's a big text, but it is one big argument, one long and consistent argument. And so I didn't want to break it up. So hear the word of the Lord, 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaken the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. 
They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let's pray. Lord, this is an intense passage of your word, but the point is clear. I pray, Lord, that you will edify us as I preach. I pray, Lord, that you, more importantly, will be glorified in the exposition of your word. Please sanctify us, for it is your truth that sanctifies us. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, this is one big unit, so I wanted to keep it intact. But since I did do two messages, and since it was a few months back, it would be wise for me to review a little bit what we went over. The context of Second Peter is, this is his second letter, obviously, Second Peter, that he wrote to various churches in several regions, Galatia, Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's writing to Jewish Christians who are undergoing immense persecution for believing the Word of God, for holding fast to what God's Word says and only to what God's Word says, to holding to the Gospel of Jesus Christ and not going beyond Scripture for revelation. They're being persecuted. And so is Peter. He is under the beast Nero, and he knows that his days are up. He knows he's going to die fairly soon. And so he says that this is an urgent reminder. He is reminding the beloved of what the Lord has taught him. And he wants them, he wants to get this letter written so that when he's gone, they will have it. And they can always recall what the Lord has taught them in his word. And in the first message, 2 Peter chapter 1, first message, we saw that we were told to be who we are. We looked at a number of descriptions of who a follower of Christ is. We are elect. We have been called out from darkness and into God's light. We are equally righteous. There isn't one believer who is more righteous than another. We all have the righteousness of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Jesus our Lord. We're also partakers of the divine nature. We have escaped worldly corruption. We are equipped with God's precious and great promises. And we, last of all, saw that we were equipped with everything we need for life and godliness. God's word being sufficient. 
And it was on that basis, our identity in Jesus Christ, that we were then exhorted to be who we are. We were exhorted to uh, make our calling and election sure. And Peter tells us that we do that by supplementing our faith with virtue, knowledge, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. That was the first message. And the second message, which was the last part of chapter 1, last five or so verses, we were given the foundation of God's word. One way for a believer to be set apart from the world is to take God at his word and not look after, look for other scriptures, look for other revelation and consider them to be on an equal footing as the word of God. To go, as Jude would say, to not go ahead of Jesus. We saw that the word of God was a more sure word than Peter's own experience of Jesus when he was transfigured. Remember when Jesus was transfigured before James, John, and Peter, Peter tells us that even God's word is a more sure word than any experience that someone can have. And so he lays down the foundation of God's sure word in chapter 1. Having laid that foundation, he now moves into chapter 2, where we are. And he warns his readers, all these churches in these various regions who are under great persecution, he warns them and us of false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing. He wants us to be equipped. He wants us to be ready. And in our message this morning, then, we will see three interconnected topics. What the false teachers are like. What will happen to them. And what will happen to the faithful. You do not give in to the false teacher's influence. And so we'll take them in that, in that order. So the first one. What the false teachers are like. Peter spends pretty much this whole chapter describing these false teachers. And so I picked only seven descriptions. This is the, the meatiest part of, or the most lengthy part of this chapter, so it'll be the one that we spend the most time on. There are so many descriptions of what these false teachers are, but I picked the first seven, or the, the best seven, I guess. So the first one is that they are insiders. Verse 1 is clear. It says, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They will be among us, we're told. As it was then, in Peter's day, as it was before Peter's day, so it is now. There is nothing new under the sun. There will be false teachers. You can count on them for 2015, just like you can count count on failed New Year's resolutions. There will be false teachers. And it might look new, but it'll just be some old heresy repackaged. And this will always be the case until Christ comes. 
because this is always going to be the case, we must be ready for them. We must be prepared. But notice what Peter says here. He says that they will come from among you. He doesn't have outsiders in mind in this passage. Certainly there are false teachers from from outside the congregation. But he doesn't have in mind, say, the, the Hindu, the Buddhist, the Muslim, Scientologist, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, or what have you. He doesn't have them in mind. He has us in mind. He's warning us about us. He says, there are some people who will come from your midst, from among you, and they will bring in false teaching, destructive heresies, and they will deny the master who bought them. These people are professing believers. They claim to be part of the covenant of God. And outwardly they are. Inwardly, however, they are not. They are going to bring in these destructive heresies. Whatever the heresy is, it's going to cut at the core of the gospel. It's going to deny the deity of Jesus. Or it's going to deny the humanity of Jesus. It's going to deny the necessity of faith or grace. Or the sufficiency of grace. Saying that you need to have something other than faith and grace to be saved. You must add to your own work. Add to your own salvation. There's going to be something that doesn't jive well with the word of God. And it's going to cut at the heart of truth. They are insiders. They will come from among us. And so we need to watch out for each other. As we look at the other descriptions, we will hear some destructive heresies from modern-day false teachers, though I will not identify them by name. I think it's wise just to be able to identify a belief rather than a person, and I don't want to step on any toes unnecessarily. So, the second description is that they are sensual. Verse 2 says that many will follow their sensuality. Sensuality is a lack of self-constraint, which involves a person in some type of conduct that violates the bounds of what is socially acceptable. Other words for it would be self-abandonment, or licentiousness, or indecency. These people are sensual. They don't have self-control. And what they do goes against what is socially acceptable. Which is hard to, which is hard to do nowadays, but that is definition of sensual. Although their heresies are secretive and subtle, as we'll see in a little bit, their sensuality is not so. They will give themselves over to what is contrary to God's parameters for someone who is made in the image of God. They will give themselves over to their own lusts and passions and desires. They will say yes to the body, and they will say no to what God has to say in his word. Sensuality sells these days. We live in a very overly sexualized country. It doesn't matter where you go. In fact, you don't even have to go anywhere. You are constantly bombarded 
with the sensual. Magazine, on the internet, commercial, movie, reading a book. We are constantly being exposed to the sensual side of things, and we're told that this debased behavior is all right. It is acceptable. Sadly, Peter says that this worldly influence will creep into the church and contaminate her. Regrettably, this is exactly what we see. One pastor of a large church says this, The world will know we are Christians by how good we are in the bedroom. He is trying to redeem, I guess, the bedroom for the Christian, basically saying to the world that we Christians have something to offer. Um, If you believe in Christianity, you don't have to um, check that part out. You can basically come be a Christian and still have a good lifestyle in the bedroom. I don't know exactly how the world is going to know that. That would involve one in some type of immorality, inviting people into the bedroom that is supposed to be not defiled, but kept pure, as the author of Hebrews says. This, of course, goes against Jesus' own teaching. How are we going to know? How will the world know that they are his disciples? By the love you have for each other, not by how good you are in the bedroom. Is as good as a element of that is in married life and what we should emphasize there. It's not, I don't think, an evangelistic point. <laughs> but there's this huge emphasis on Christian erotica in the church these days because we are sexual beings. We are made for those desires, and they're not bad, but they can be. They can be twisted, and so the world is twisting that, and the Peter is saying there are false teachers are going to twist that, going to have the worldly influence so much so in the church. So they are insiders and they are sensual. Their third thing is they are blasphemers. Verse 2 says that because of them and their sensuality, the way of truth will be blasphemed. The way of truth, of course, is Jesus Christ who himself says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And his gospel and his truth will be abused, mocked, slandered. It will be considered to be narrow-minded or rejected because it's not the full story or it's not, it's not enough. We need something other than the gospel. The false teachers don't take God at his word. They add to his word. And so they're going to blaspheme by adding new, strange doctrines. And there will be an acceptance and tolerance and approval of these strange, blasphemous, and dangerous doctrines. For Peter, that meant at least one thing. That blasphemous doctrine was that the day of the Lord was not going to come. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, he addresses that. There were people who said, the day of the Lord is not going to come. That might be um, what we see here nowadays, too. But I picked two modern ways in which the way of truth has been blasphemed. This quote comes from a, a woman of a very famous pastor. 
It's a fairly recent quote. You might actually identify the source. It's been in the media a lot. Even the secular media has, uh, the world has um, caught on to this. She says this, When we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves. Because God takes pleasure when we're happy. Just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship Him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself. Because that's what makes God happy. Amen? And all the people said, Amen. How can someone who affirms God in His Word say something like this? It is true that when we come to worship the Lord, we receive edification. We receive many blessings and benefits when we partake of the sacraments, when we hear the Word of God preached, when we give of our tithes and offerings, when we sing songs to the Lord, when we fellowship with one another. Certainly, there are benefits and edification to be had. But when we come to worship God, we're doing it for Him. We're doing it for God's glorification, not our own edification. He and He alone is the reason you guys are all here. Not because of each other. You're here because of God. And He has spoken. Another way that the way of truth hasn't blasphemed is as a paraphrase, this one guy is talking about failure. And he asks the question, who is the biggest failure that you know? And he's trying to entertain some ideas. Well, maybe someone thinks it's Adam. He certainly failed. It was a pretty big failure, wasn't it? Were it not for him, we wouldn't be sinners. No, this guy doesn't think so. He's not the biggest failure. Though he did fail. Well, okay, well then Satan, he's got to be the biggest failure, right? He's pretty bad. No, not, this, not, not according to this guy. The biggest failure, according to this person, who claims to be a follower of Jesus, is God. God is the biggest failure. And he says this because he lost it all. He lost his top-ranking angel, Satan. He lost... Adam, he lost Eve, he lost the whole world, and he lost a third of the angels. So, according to this guy, God is the biggest failure. He thinks that's encouraging and comforting because since he failed and he kind of got back on his feet, we can too. (laughs) These are utter blasphemies against our triune God and his word. Sometimes the false teachers are obviously false and easily recognized as frauds, as is the case with these two quotes. But sometimes they're not. This is our fourth description. They are subtle and secretive. So they're insiders, they are sensual, they're blasphemers, and here, fourthly, they are subtle and secretive. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, They're hard to recognize because they mix in enough truth with the error. If if someone were to say to you, Jesus never existed, you would say, 
All right, well, you're just obviously wrong. You're ignorant of historical facts. Come on, even atheists believe that there was a guy named Jesus. They just don't think he was a god. They think the disciples made a legend out of him, devised a myth to have a bunch of followers, and then died for that myth. But if someone were to say something that has a fairly good amount of truth in it, well, then you have a problem. Then you have possible, um, a possibility of being deceived. J.I. Packer is known for saying this, a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth is a whole lie. When you take a part of what God reveals in Scripture and you blow that out of proportion, and you don't regard anything else that Scripture has to say on the topic, you are now building a theology that is not consistent with all other Scripture. And so you're making a truth a lie by not giving the full picture. And this is the work of Satan. Satan is the father of lies. That's what he does. This is what he did with Jesus and the temptations. In Matthew chapter 4... Satan didn't say things that were so obviously mistaken. He quoted scripture. He took scripture and he twisted it. Likewise, these false teachers, because they are not children of the Lord, but children of the devil, as you will see in John 8, as Pastor Steve continues preaching in John, since they are children of the devil, they use the truth and they twist it They pervert it to their own destruction. Just mix in enough truth to be dangerous. A famous woman, um, I guess she's a pastor, says this in her most recent book. No matter how many people love you, if you don't love yourself, you will still feel lonely. This might sound somewhat Orthodox. After all, Scripture does say, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so this person is building a theology on that part, love your neighbor as yourself. So apparently we have to love ourselves. And if we don't love ourselves, it doesn't matter who loves us, we're going to feel lonely all the days of our lives. Take that to this logical conclusion, and it doesn't matter if our Lord, our Father, our great God who has saved us, it really wouldn't matter if he loves us perfectly. If we don't love ourselves, we're still going to feel lonely. Another quote from the same person. She says, Sin is not a problem for God because he is able to forgive it, forget it, and offer mercy to the sinner. Again, sounds pretty orthodox. After all, the Lord does cast our sins away from us as far as the east is from the west. And he says he remembers our sins no more. He forgets, he forgives, he offers us mercy. But to say that sin is not a problem for God is to deny all of what Scripture teaches. Ever since Genesis 3, sin became a huge problem for God. It was such a problem that if God was going to save anyone, he'd have to do something about it, and he would have to send his own son his sinless son, perfect son, who is God himself. He had to send him 
into the world, to be subjected to the futility of the world and to the destruction and worldly influence. And he had to live and die a horrible death, suffering from the wrath of the Father. To say sin is not a problem is a complete blasphemy. But a quote like this, because there's a bit of truth in there, can be dangerous, and we might not catch the error. False teachers are, not- are notorious for slipping in subtle and secretive heresies, heresies that are destructive. Their fifth description is that they are bold and willful. In verse 10 it says, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Glorious ones here refers to angels. They are audacious. They are arrogant. They are stubborn. And they do not, they do not know their place as humans. They, they dare to blaspheme God's angels. We're not told in exactly what way, but they blaspheme the glorious ones. Even though the angels, who are greater in might and power do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment upon them. Because the angels know their place. And they know that it's God's prerogative and God's prerogative alone to judge ultimately those creatures. But no, not for them. They think that they own the joint. They have this, who can stop me attitude. They pretend to be divine when they are mere creatures. They pretend to be the potter when they are just the clay. Here's one example. The wife of someone I already quoted says that we can, Christians, we can control the weather. She's talking to thousands of people, and they're all amening her. At first, when you say something like that, people balk and like, what? But then once she explains it, oh, yeah, that makes sense. We can control the weather. And one, one day, um, I don't know if this is a true account or not, but she was saying that one day uh, they were going to go flying, she and her husband, going to get on the airplane. Um, so they're packing their bags, and then they, and she sees a storm a-brewing outside, and so she runs into the bedroom and says her husband's name, Husband, you got to do something about this. Because he is the head of the household. And she believes that he can control the weather. Though what's hilarious is that, it's also sad, but what's hilarious is that just a couple sentences later, after she explains the story, she says that she and her husband don't fly in bad weather. Not sure why, if they can control it. And this comes with the, this comes with the idea that, or from the idea that we are little gods. And I'm not talking about Mormons here. I'm talking about professing Christians, that you can watch on television, on Christian television, because we are little gods, we can control the weather. But only, only God can. When Jesus calmed the storm, Jesus' disciples said, who is this that even the winds obey him? If this woman were right, then they should have said, oh look, he can do something we can. That's pretty cool. He's really nothing special. I can control the weather. So can he. 
No. The fact that he can control the weather showed that he was God. They're not. They're mere creatures. But this is the boldness of these false teachers. Sixth, they are greedy. We're told in Second Peter that they have hearts that are trained in greed. And they love gain from wrongdoing. Greed is the main motivating factor for these past, present, and future false teachers. It's what gets them out of bed every morning. Peter compares them to Balaam. He says that they have followed the way of Balaam. If you remember your Old Testament book of Numbers 22 and following, you have Balaam, who is a prophet. And the king of Moab, Balak, sees that Israel is becoming quite numerous and then a threat. So what Balak does is he tries to hire Balaam to pronounce curses upon the nation of Israel. So he sends some princes to Balaam's house and says, Hey, will you, you know, come over here and curse the nation of Israel? I'll give you some money. And he refuses at first, a couple times actually. We might think, oh, that's pretty godly of him, that he refuses. The Lord does eventually tell him to go, but the Lord is going to, through Balaam, Bless Israel, not curse Israel. But we're told in, towards the end of Numbers that Balaam was killed by the Israelites. And in 2 Peter 2, in our text, Peter doesn't think Balaam had true intentions. He loved gain from wrongdoing. His motives were not right. His motives were monetary. He wanted money. He thought he could get more out of the king of Moab to, to get him to try to curse Israel. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, Scripture says, and nothing has changed these days. Money motivates people to deceive and exploit others. One example from famous health and wealth prosperity gospel preacher, he says that by sowing a seed, and that is in prosperity gospel preaching, you sow a seed that you give money to reap a harvest. And so the more, money, the more money you sow, the bigger seed you sow, the bigger harvest you're going to get. If you want a big blessing, you've got to give a lot. You want a little blessing? Fine, just give a little. But he says, by sowing a seed of $1,000 to his ministry, there in this one um, televising, he says, Someone, someone's marriage is going to be saved. A mother's son is going to be healed of cancer. Someone's relative is going to be freed from drug addiction. The bondage of poverty is going to be broken if you just give this guy a thousand bucks. Another pastor of a big church was challenging, this is in a worship service, he was challenging the men to be leaders and the way that they could show that they were leaders in their household was by, right there in the church, taking out that um, tithing envelope and writing down their account number. And he, the, the pastor um, stopped, and he was waiting for them to get out the envelope and write down the account number. And it was pretty awkward watching the, the, 
the video clip, he was spending quite a bit of time just waiting for them and encouraging them and basically guilt-tripping them into putting their account number, setting up for an automatic withdrawal. And he says if they don't do that, they're wasting their time and God's time. Their goal is to merchandise, is to make merchandise out of God's people, to use God's church as commodities for their own selfish gain. They are insiders. They are sensual. They are blasphemers, subtle and secretive. They are bold and willful and greedy. Finally, in this section, they are waterless springs, Verse 17, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. They promise all sorts of things, but they cannot deliver. They promise freedom from sin, freedom from drug addiction, freedom from cancer, freedom from financial problems, freedom from problems with your wife or with your kids, freedom from problems with your boss. They promise success in your employment. They promise cars, money, all kinds of things, material and immaterial. They promise and promise and promise, but they cannot deliver on any of these promises because they're false teachers. And because, Peter says, they are enslaved to their own sins. They're making these promises, these false words, in order to gain from us. And their, their effect is great. Their influence is widespread. Many, Peter says, will, be, will follow and be exploited. And that's how things have been, generation after generation, especially in the last hundred years or so in America. Millions have lost the way because of these people. So many people follow certain of these teachers across the country, going from state to state, wherever these people are having some healing revivals. And they, they bring their son who's been paralyzed, who has a very rare disease, something like that. They bring him from place to place, just hoping that one day, at, the, at one of these revivals, after giving a certain amount of money, and after having enough faith, one day... He's going to be healed. One day their problems will be over. But each time they leave doubting God, hopeless, wondering where God was, thought the Spirit was moving, but apparently He wasn't, and disbelieving God and His Word. Those are the descriptions of these false teachers. What's going to happen to them? Peter spends a lot lot of time describing these guys, but what's going to happen? As we can tell, these descriptions are not of someone whose heart has been changed by God. They are professors of the faith. They don't possess it, though. And Peter is crystal clear about what's going to happen to them. They will be judged, they will be condemned, and they will be destroyed. This is some intense language. But it's scriptural. They are going to receive 
the just punishment for rejecting the way of righteousness, Jesus Christ. Do we have any assurance that this is what's going to happen? Yes. Peter gives us three examples. In verses 4, 5, and 6, he talks about how God did not spare the angels when they sinned. He's talking about the fallen angels who fell with Satan. God didn't spare them. He didn't give them mercy and grace like he extends to us. They, he says, are committed. They've been cast into hell and committed, to, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. They have been judged and they await the final judgment. Peter also refers to the ancient world in the flood. You know, the story of Noah is not some nice children's story. It's a story that should cause us to tremble. It's a story of immense judgment from God. That only eight people in the whole world would be saved. That the ancient world was not spared, but was destroyed. Not only that, but Peter mentions the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. These cities were known throughout Scripture for their great wickedness. But as Peter reminds us, they were also known for never being rebuilt, for being condemned to ashes, to extinction. And these three examples are the strongest that Peter can mention in Scripture to prove to us that the false teachers will be condemned. They will be judged, and they will ultimately be destroyed. Vengeance vengeance is mine, says the Lord. This should grant us comfort to know that we don't have to be the administrators of justice, that the Lord will be just, and he will demonstrate his holiness at the time that he... That he chooses. But for those who profess Christ's name, but who are inwardly ravenous wolves, Peter says they will be condemned, and this should cause them great fear. They might think that they're all right. They're swimming in the money they just got exploiting others. That they're on the right path because they profess to be believers. But they are not. And this should cause one to examine his own heart. This is what awaits the false teachers. And finally, what awaits the faithful? What about those who do not give in to the influence of these false teachers? I trust that you are not a false teacher. I trust that you are a sheep. And that's why I am warning you of false teachers. What's going to happen to us who remain faithful to the Lord? Peter tells us that the righteous will be saved. They will be preserved. They will be kept from deception. They will not give in to the worldly influence. Well, that's what Peter says, but again, do we have any assurance that this is what's going to happen? Yes. 
And Peter cites two examples, two characters in the Bible. He mentions Lot. Even though the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were beyond wicked, the Lord knew that he had his righteous and faithful Lot. Lot was not perfect by any means, especially when you read the end of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah with his daughters. But Peter does tell us that Lot was tormented day after day because of what he had seen and heard from the wicked. And the Lord rescued Lot and his daughters. And he found them refuge. Even after Lot had kind of questioned God, well, how about, how about I go to this place instead and not where you just told me? And God said, fine, go there. He is, the Lord preserved Lot from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. An even greater deliverance is found in the Lord's rescue of Noah and his family. Noah and his wife, their three sons and their three sons' wives, eight overall. It wasn't just a few cities in this case, like it was in Sodom and Gomorrah, that were wicked, but it was the whole world, as we saw. And it grieved God that he had created man. And so he, because he is a just God, decided to condemn it and to judge it and to send it or plunge it into the waters of judgment. And so he did. But God was faithful to his promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, that there would be a seed of the woman who would crush the seed of the head of the serpent. And he couldn't do that unless there were still remaining And so Noah's seed became Seth's seed, who eventually became Abraham's seed, who eventually became David's seed, and on and on. And ultimately here we find Jesus Christ as the one who is going to crush the head of the serpent. And who does that? He is the ultimate deliverer. And he, because of his resurrection, has defeated death, has defeated the devil, and has defeated sin. And Peter says, in this way, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their various trials. And we can bank on it because of Christ's resurrection, because of God's saving work. On this note, then, let us close and not lose hope. Yes, there will be false teachers in every generation. Second Peter is a short letter. But he spends more than half of it talking about the character and the influence of false teachers. And this is his last letter. So this is very much on his heart, very important to him. And he does this so that we might be prepared, that we might be equipped and warned about false teachers from among us. And that we might remain faithful to the Lord to the end. God is faithful to judge the wicked. And he is faithful to rescue the godly. When the faithful cry out, how long, O Lord, as we sang an earlier song, the Lord hears our cries. And he is faithful 
to deliver on his promise. Unlike these false teachers who promise thing after thing after thing and don't deliver, God, he delivers on his promises. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what persecutions you might be undergoing, what godly trials the Lord has sent your way. I don't know what trials or temptations you are experiencing. But I do know that the Lord will rescue you in his timing. Be assured that just as the Lord condemned the fallen angels, the ancient world, and Sodom and Gomorrah, so too will he judge these wicked false teachers. They will one day have to give an account to God for what they have done to God's people. But be assured even more that just as the Lord rescued Lot and Noah, so too will he rescue you from your trials because of Jesus Christ. In his name, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the promises that you give us in Scripture, that you have not left us, that your Son, Jesus Christ, has defeated the enemy. And that though things are difficult here, Lord, one day, righteousness will run rampant and not wickedness. We will dwell where righteousness dwells, in your presence, all because of your Son, in his name, amen.